0: Nutt Moo Tassa Bhagawato or Hattua Sama Sambudhasa Nutt Moo Tassa Bhagawato or Hattua Sama Sambudhasa Udang The retreat coming to a, to an end, uh, and uh, so where everyone is in one's practice over the months or years, it's uh, important to be able to recognise there are fruits. The fruits have to be properly acknowledged, understood, reintegrated into the practice, and uh, uh, so the uh, loveliness of it the fruits of the practice even kind of small things even the uh, small fruits are to be recognized because we tend to always think of big picture and end of all problems and you know complete flawless samadhi or nirvana and you don't re- recognize the fact that my brain was a little more patient than one was ten years ago or something like this or you know, to acknowledge and recognise the, the tangible, specific results of practice. So if we don't do this, then we lose touch with what's lovely, and then you, you lose heart, you lose confidence, you lose energy, you know, to keep in touch with what's called the, uh, you know, the, the beautiful or the lovely, this there's a, probably a very poor approximation for what's meant by the word kalyana in the, in the Pali scriptures, the word kalyana which when one looks at it probably means something like uplifting, nourishing, sustaining gladdening, strengthening delight, you know that which causes delight to the heart not just a kind of sensory quality but a spiritual quality Kalyana and so the of course this phrase is uh, the, we chant it in the Dhammas called uh, that which is Kalyana in the beginning, Kalyana in the middle and Kalyana in the end, it's the same abiding quality, it's always got this loveliness to it right at right the very beginning that which inspires or that which Gives one interest to to practice at all, or to just to go and sit down and meditate, it has to be recognised. That kind of intention is that you know, even though it may not be very, doesn't seem to dominate. You know, you it's got a big, glorious f- flush to it, but there's some quality there that lifts one up. One is one aspires. One is interested. One sees results in the beginning there is a, 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 so a scripture sutta associated particularly with this word and it's, it seems to be somewhat trivialised sometimes and this is where the, the Ananda was the Buddha's cousin and dear friend and uh, close associate where he was not uh, at this particular time completely enlightened and he was, he was he was very kind of uh, uh, willing and, and inspired and glad kind of person under means bliss, probably quite right in his case and he was saying oh, one day he was very uplifted by all, all his fellow disciples and he was saying that it's just to associate to associate with association with these good people like this the Kalyana mita this is this is must be at least what half of the practice is about association with the lovely and he of course is referring to to people to the fellow uh, practitioners and the buddha said oh no don't say that ananda no, it's not half it's the complete wholeness of the holy life this association with what's lovely but often people leave it there thinking oh you know, this means the buddha really thought that to have good friends in the holy life is that's what it's all about. And this this would be rather unlikely, actually, um, as the Buddha tended to occasionally rebuke Ananda for his fondness of company, and say, you know, you need to develop more practice on your own, Ananda. Um, so it's unlikely that the Buddha would actually be backing Ananda up. He wasn't even enlightened at the time. And then the Buddha then he, the Buddha goes on to say that. Uh, association with the lovely comprises cultivating the eightfold path and cultivating it dependent on detachment, dispassion, cessation and complete relinquishment, self-relinquishment which is much more the kind of thing that buddhas say <laughs> and of course these all these words are English words so they, they come across a bit... Uh, a bit strange to the ear how you know, cessation can be lovely for example or relinquishment and it's, it's uh, but then uh, and there are many occasions that there's a whole, this this particular sequence, detachment dispassion, cessation relinquishment, it's applied to also the enlightenment factors through a whole series of suttas time and time and time and time again it has seemed to be one particular sister device that the Buddha used, one particular pedagogical um, kind of analysis that he used to describe the growing of the practice, and he used the phrase dependent on dis- detachment dependent on dispassion, dependent on cessation and ripening or maturing into complete relinquishment <clears throat> this kind was very um, you know, it's feeling it's kind of like a flowering or a blossoming into this and of course when we the English language perhaps doesn't do it credit we tend to of course see things very much from the the you know the position of the sensory realm or the where things seem definite and solid and there's there's objects out there that are real and you know so that this kind of the Buddha's mind is really turns things inside out and he sees that actually the phenomenal world is empty um, and it's the emptiness that is the real fullness and the beauty is the clarity and the transparency and the incredible f- uh, fluidity and fluency the emptiness allows if things are phenomena are empty this means that there's a real possibility for any kind of Creativity to be expressed, we're no longer locked into a finite world. There's a no real possibility for the beauty of the heart to stream forth. And this is this, uh, then the Buddha said, "This is what association with the body, really lovely, is about." So when you consider this, the eightfold path. And then uh, the way to cultivate it. Mm. And the process that occurs when one cultivates it. And then occasions when the Buddha also described just the, the process of taking up the Eightfold Path, they say you, one meets something, a person reads a book, nowadays you read a book, there's no tape, something catches the heart. Huh. This is, if you like, the first sign of the beautiful. Something inspires, something attracts. You get all close. You're interested. You get involved. You, you know, that kind of is also a lovely quality. You, you practice with yourself. You, you struggle with yourself even. But you're doing it not from a position of trying to beat or repress things, but because you really want what's best. So therefore, you have that heart that wants that is aims to like pull itself out of dullness and delusion. So this also is beautiful. And in terms of practicalities, then the Buddha would say, well, you have to develop the kalya, you have to find the kalyana uh, you have to develop the moral qualities and there's a sense of conscientiousness in yourself, and the Kalyana Mita, or the lovely friend, is the person who reminds you of that, who keeps that in mind for you. It doesn't necessarily mean they... they it's not really like a teacher. It is a kind of teacher, but it's also an exemplar. Someone who reminds you of that. You even see them or think of them, and you feel, oh, that's... It just suddenly your mind attunes to those core values that are your own it's like you're being tuned again oh yes and you went out of tune and you got tuned up again so this is what the Kalyanamita is it's like a, a a person generally a person who acts as something <coughs> that you, you can attune yourself to and you think is this worthy would they do this or Um, They remind you of things that that you know and hold dear in your own heart. So it acts as the kind of repository of one's core values, and this is, say, what the the Sangha, specifically the Samana Sangha, is about, specifically. Of course, one may have that in lay life, people who remind you of these things, but actually as a whole kind of emblem, the Samana Sangha, which actually... You know, dresses in a particular way brings forth certain qualities acts as that particular emblem so to associate with that to see that to remember that to meet that to receive the message of it to enter into dialogue with it is is beautiful it, it steadies one it calms one it inspires one this is this is what loveliness is in this sense it's loveliness in your own heart and uh, if and this is something I think we should always remember particularly, you know, particularly in an entreat situation it's a chance to see that you know, even when one isn't talking or engaging very much in a way it kind of really helps to purify the perceptions we don't necessarily need the support that comes from discussion Um it's not to say that this is useless, but just to know that there's a support just comes from seeing and witnessing and remembering each other in this light, as meditators, as people who... perhaps we can't meditate, but we keep the sila, we keep the, the, the moral precepts. You know, that's, that's really just to feel that when you, your mind attunes to that, rather than thinking, well, you know, she, she's late, or he's like this, or he's not going to get very far, is he? Just the way that someone keeps a sealer. You know? That's what I do. And to touch into that means that your own, your own quality of virtue is itself uplifted. It amplifies. It's like putting something through an amplifier. You suddenly remember that. Yeah, I do that. That's what's good. So it helps to 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 regain and establish and steady the confidence in yourself. That's when the meditation isn't going so well. The Kalyanamita, and as much as one may uh, need or be helped by that, it's also important to recognise the basis of one's practice in many ways is to is to be that. You know. Is to, you know, to try to live that out, present it so that just this is what we can do.' This is what we can do. Mm. just be here with each other. we can do that. And that's valuable. And if you tune to it in that particular way it's also it's also uplifting. it's gladdening. You do get a sense of just hanging around by being here for you. And that that is uplifting. It suddenly it values your own presence. So this is how this is, this loveliness is a kind of holistic quality, and it's not really about personalities or doing things. It's something that you enter into the mind stream of that which is beautiful. Now, suppose. The particular meditation practices are always um, prefaced by this quality of Vivekya, which is that, first of all, it's it's a sort of sense of standing back from unskillfulness, standing back from it. It's always seen as a kind of withdrawing or standing back. And uh, it's not a running away or a denial, but really to stand back so that you can you can get in touch with your core values and see things in perspective, you know, so you don't get overwhelmed. And so this is what, of course, formal meditation, in many ways, uh, exercises in developing that particular um, perspective an ability to, f- to shift attention, to, to stabilise attention, so that we can see mind stuff, body stuff, memories, and so on, in perspective. We no longer are them, it's something we can now witness, contemplate. It needs you get some way of, of deciding what you want to act on what you don't in some sense of judging what's worthy of you and what's not this is Viveka in its kind of primary primary quality and um, so this is a kind of basic meditation thing so when you focus on a particular meditation object like a sensation in your body word, mantra, light, sound, breath then essentially that ability to, to start, get a position, a point, steady watching, one would say this is the ability to establish and sustain that quality of Viveka, which has to be done through through uh, energy. It doesn't just happen. It has to be energetically rolled around. And the kind of um, application to that is uplifting. Application because it it is not a it, it can't be done through through aversion to things or not wanting things. It has to be done through a, a real sense of lifting oneself up. You know this is something you have to see now. To stay that stay in view with that, not something to kind of fall into or nod off on or grab hold of or run away from keep it in mind so this deals first with the meditation object and then of course with the various hindrances that tend to come up and catch and capture and overwhelm so you use the meditation object very often as a way of of establishing that that steady uh, perspective which we can begin to see the sign of this you begin to see that things change things arise and cease and you get this kind of window of impermanence, of so the real, the real uh, fruit of impermanence, as you begin to see points, if you like, in that flux of mind where there's a moment of emptiness, where something stops, where a, a mind flow stops, or a mental activity stops see the ending of something. You're following the breath, you're kind of able to see, follow the ending of the breath, and then the end of the breath, this is kind of a moment of a pause. The mind is quiet. And you get that kind of, uh, you know, you're able to recognize that. Experience, there's a certain lightness about the uh, experience of, of a nature in permanence. It's flowing, and it presents these kind of windows into a realm that, that most people ordinarily wouldn't have any language for, even knowledge. I think it's just, you know, imagine life is just continual, wall-to-wall noise or activity. There aren't breaks in it. Um, but this, is, this viveka is not, at least in this sense of the word, isn't really a, uh, it's, to be, it's to be valued. But um, there's a further fruition, which is what the viraga is about, or dispassion, which is dependent on that. And it seems that, that what very often happens both, partly because even the language of, of meditation tends to talk about watching things and noticing things change, and it, the viveka itself has got this sense of being a particular, it's almost like a visual metaphor where you, you stand back and you see something, but what it, what it tends to leave is this feeling of being separate from, or having a particular position, and things are there and I'm here, and uh, that relationship with phenomena is uh, um, in its in needs in his maturation. It, it, it can it can go very stale, and you know just kind of you know in this. So, like limbo state view, watching things but, uh, And uh, behind that, on that position of watching, they're kind of on that particular point of the watcher, uh, there arises or begins to accumulate a certain amount of um, residual personality stuff, such as um, a certain hesitancy, fear, numbness. A staleness a lack of vitality because um, it gets kind of fixed. I don't know if you experience that it doesn't really allow you much movement you're just standing there watching. So there's a certain kind of rigidity about it. And the meditation object even if you have say, um, good, good concentration, or good. Then you, you get that you're able to focus on your meditation object becomes quite clear and strong. Um, then what can, comes, what can come up, is a kind of sense of uh, like a, a conceit, or you know, when one has done this, I am this, I'm watching, you know, I am that kind of sense of be, being stabilized. And um, that acts as the breeding ground for views, opinions, um, a certain sort of aloofness in life, a certain conceit, a lack of vitality, a lack of specific involvement or vitality with things. And I think it's probably... Useful to say there that, that a certain amount of, of um, the kind of psychological stuff that goes on in people is about death. You have a life instinct, you have a death instinct. The life instinct is the thing that wants to go out and enjoy. And it's often quite wild and it's expansive. The death instinct was to contract and fade out and stop everything. And this is kind of Eros and Thanatos in the Western psychology and it's Bhava and Vibhava in Buddhism. And uh, so Bhava is, the, if you like, the life instinct and Vibhava is the death instinct. And I think, well, so you have to recognize these are, these are totally normal, these are not just kind of neurotic, or well, at least everybody's, if you like, normally neurotic. Um, so it's to acknowledge these qualities, these experiences in one's own makeup, you know. Really. And um, we tend to live in a, a time when the, the, the Eros instinct, the life instinct, is pretty uncultivated. Um, I mean, it's not It's not mature. It tends to be quite silly and greedy. It tends towards greed and selfishness. And then you've got the death instinct, which is associated with duty and work and these kind of things. And uh, depending, again, on one's own personal conditioning, you can probably find all kinds of um, personal... Uh, attitudes that fit in with ours and probably there's people who become monks and nuns no probably got a good amount of death in them, <laughs> Cause it tend, it, can it be that which attracts that particular thing, get away from it all, and the words like cessation, extinction really appeal to the, 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 <laughs> the drop dead. Um, Get out of it, sort of attitude of mind. I mean, you don't become a monk or a nun in all the have a, you know, because you're kind of full of erotic delight. That's all it's about so this quality of 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 um, delight, really, the erotic instinct, is that which has to be acknowledged and also directed into into practice it's um, the difference between desire and energy if you like, Eros is normally caught up with wanting rather than appreciating and fulfilment and it's this process of association with the lovely that really means the lovely is that which actually takes on that particular Eros energy it, 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 it is the Dharma channel for it and it's I would say it's impossible really to be able to sustain a holy life if one doesn't, if one can't make that connection, you know, it just gets, you know, if you're just into death all the time, it gets a bit difficult. And you're always kind of trying to fight want to get out of things all the time and move away from everything you've got this feeling everything's about defilement and attachment and you know the world and all this sort of stuff so it, it uh, you're always in that kind of energy goes uh, you know it starts off a heroic but it just then it just gets downright um, mean-hearted. <laughs> Now, Viraga, dispassion is my suggestion is that uh, so when you begin to actually bring the subject into the picture that we begin to develop through detachments, instead of watching things, now you also say uh, who's watching? Just about a check into how am I witnessing? What kind of energy is there? Um, you're witnessing things in a sort of casual way, you're witnessing things like a like a rabbit does a snake, you know, kind of hypnotised, uh, or you kind of, you know, are you, is the meditator the subject that was very intense and get, trying to get somewhere, or is it highly critical, is it restless, fidgety, feeling inadequate, you know, in other words, to begin to touch in and to, 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 to things that may not be, even be that obvious. And perhaps particularly if one, has, one is able to concentrate very much on an object, then you may not even really be that clearly aware of the subject. And it's this is not unusual. We get mesmerized, not just in meditation, perhaps less in meditation than we do in other things that we're doing. So dispassion means that you, you see what, what the, the subject is about is about it's about volition, it's about intention. Objects are about attention, the ability to focus and form an object in your mind, in your eye. That's attention, that particular activity. Manasikara means the the mind makes something, focuses, it shapes it up. Intention or jitana is is how you do it, why you do it. Intent so this gives a't just this isn't like when we use the work English word intention when you've got some particular purpose. It means something much more primary than that. just the basic volitional urge movement whether it's weak, agitated, demanding, threatening, loving, skillful, or unskillful. It's that kind of urge to do. And so when that begins to be acknowledged, recognized, and then the same kind of light of acknowledging and, and contemplating, then some of the blind instinct goes out of that, just through the power of witnessing. So you see, hey, what are we doing? You say, oh. And you realize you were tensed up. Or you realize you were kind of only half there and you're just doing something for the sake of doing something, you're not really with your meditation, just kind of, it goes off and out of doing this. And then you suddenly look at that state, wait a minute, what are we doing? And so that, suddenly, it does kind of, it tunes you up again. So it, it, again, it associates you with what's, what's uplifting, what's straightening. And it, it both, if you like, it, it cools down, that which is over-intense or demanding, and it lifts that which is flaccid or insipid or weak. And this a quality of viraga. You see, you've got a kind of whole picture. And then the process of meditation, then, is very much when the, quali- the intention and attention, these fields, which, which now you can see both of them, you're starting to make them balance together. So if the first action is this sense of Finding a position where you can see things in perspective is very much like position perspective. The second one is much more like juggling, balancing, you know, like a continual referring to find a balance. It's a subtler and yet more holistic experience. And why it's called dispersion is because it's, um, it dissociates from. Having a particular burning uh, passion, either skillful or unskilful, so the intensity of one's drive, if you like, and of course the fascination with the object or the disgust with the object, you know, these are things that start to get um, lightened. One, one detaches from that. There's a, there's a letting go of that so essentially this is where desire begins to, to um, fade out in its coarsest form and dispassion desire is that which always locks energy into a particular form always associates vitality with a particular form or an object yeah. it's about stimulation so when that is relinquished, then that energy, that vitality, no longer being no longer associated with a particular form, such so as something thought of, seen, heard, remembered, either through liking it or through, dis, or through disliking it, so both of those, mm. now if, there's, if there's an unhooking of that, that vitality, that energy, is, is left free. And you get this experience of a kind of suffusion. Instead of being focused on a particular form, it suffuses the whole field of consciousness. So this is rather, so then this is a feeling of bliss. So dispassion is is not a kind of cold, leached out sort of feeling, it's it's an experience of of a form of delight and bliss. It's rather like you've got a passionate though it, it it seems very powerful it's it very it can be very bright or very dark and it moves a lot it's actually very shallow because it always has to depend upon some particular thought feeling sense object which is changing which is which is impermanent we've already seen that. So dispassion, which sounds, is actually much more profound because it doesn't depend upon it, it's just the mind, which is always here. So it's rather like the difference in the waves and the ocean. The ocean is the dispassion, which has got the depth to it. The waves just chop, 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 chop. Well, admittedly, this is, of course, one has got to Develop the practice to the point when you can actually experience you know, moods, feelings, thoughts, um, pictures in the mind, sense objects as changing. So it's not to mean, you know, this means it comes from having cultivated Viveka. So you begin to see the changing nature of this. And it's, it's a fruition there in dispassion. This, this is probably where you know, in real terms, it's probably where most of us um, need to work just around this, Viveka and Viraga. No. You know, internally and externally, both in what we, you know, meditation, in what we do, what we remember, what we dread, what, we, what mundane things, and so on. To be very specific with it. Mm. This is not just some kind of ethereal, spaced-out state. It's very much one of, of the activity of acknowledging an attachment, getting it in perspective, and then having got it in perspective, no longer forming an opinion about it. In other words, we begin to develop the sign of anatta, so rather than I've got to be someone who doesn't have this feeling or I've got more of that feeling or this feeling is me or mine or something like that, you see this is that is that's relinquished. So the first step of the practice seems to be when in this sense where you you recognise everything here is me if you like, you could call it that way this is when we begin to acknowledge and get in perspective our life rather than there's things out there that I've got no say over what I can recognise is my is now say anxiety distaste joy, interest and so on so this is when that kind of reflection is like there's nothing else here but me. So when we bring that reflection into the mind, it, it kind of it means that the the transferring the vitality and responsibility of our lives to other people and external situations, that transference is is stopped. So whatever's happening, I'm the. It's here where the liking and the disliking is so this is a reflection that, you know, I used to use myself as nothing else here but me so I am like an egomaniac but it doesn't mean nobody else counts it means that I am trying to work very immediately with what I am putting forth no matter what anybody else seems to be doing what I am not putting forth but also what I am interpreting and out of situations. It's my interpretations, my projections, my responses. They're happening here. That's the first. So you see, then you get the sense of right now, we can cultivate some detachment that's detaching it from that transferred state into this. And then and then now what if that experience now we begin to look at as Say, now there's just forces and energies moving. So I'm not here either. Well, there's nobody else here, I'm not here either. It's just these particular karmic energies and forces. So then this is the possibility for iraga, when there's that deep deepening and, and cultivation of this sign of anatta. So when you say, there's, I'm not here, well that mean? It means there's a physical form, which happens momentarily in consciousness. There are, there are thoughts and impressions that happen momentarily in consciousness. There are moods and instincts, there are drives and urges, there are deflections. Now particularly when we've got these kind of situations where you, know, you, you think you're doing one thing, say you're meditating, and around the edge of all this meditation is this kind of nattering circle of onlookers, and if you get there, yeah, see so you meditate, there's these kind of little things in the background right? Yeah, yeah some of them actually they' don't even really get words out, they're just kind of looking over and then looking, looking a bit hissing occasionally booing. well, oh, that's very good, a bit of congratulation going on. there's this stuff around there, occasionally've got faces, you know, there's my aunt and my girlfriend or whatever kind of creeping in again. <laughs> They all are, you know. You've got this kind of ghostly audience who keep sticking their fingers in. Now, you know, you can open that up to now, these are all my people, right? They're not just people outside bothering me from somewhere in the past, you know. What past? They're here now. So, this is now you bring them in, you open it up. And you can actually, when you do this in terms of the reality of, of what's happening, it's quite. Powerful to see that there's this kind of resistance to acknowledging that that kind of over the border stuff is actually part of where, where you, what's ha- what you're doing. In a very use that word very, that term very crudely. You're not deliberately yeah. doing it, it's part of what's happening through you. Is all this kind of fringe stuff that's commenting on your central activity, and it's something you doesn't want to be with that. You keep pushing it away. It's getting in the way. And there's all round that border, there's all kinds of shame and distaste and this, that, and the other. And don't bother me, kind of thing. You now we kind of open up. so okay. You come in, and there's that sense where we're not having a position anymore. We have to start some dialogue going, some sense of rapprochement. Now, I mean, just to be out, just to just to take that on itself is a kind of is a very um, beautiful things to do because this is when we begin to really resolve backlogs of karma or be parker, old inherited stuff. Yeah. Little bits of fear and worry have got locked up and become people on the edge of our mind. Sometimes they haven't even got faces, they're just nebulous forces called them or it. <laughs> And you carry it around it says it must be done and they want you to do this and they would never understand and these kind of whoever these are so this is really important to think to actually to, to get in touch with who this limit who they are and bring them in so that only really becomes possible when one has developed these kind of skills. Because you haven't got enough steadiness to sustain attention. Just if you normally, otherwise, it just kind of the whole field just breaks up into a kind of riot. <laughs> so to be able to do this is uh, is a, a sign of some kind of uh, some sort of fruition. And then, they, then over that whole thing, looking with equal eye, if you like, or receiving with equal heart, the things that I call me and the things that I call not me, the things beyond the border, the things in the centre, with e- e- equalising. So this is where, this is dispassion, And the result of it is a kind of wholeness, that all that <laughs> inner division is, is begins to be dissipating, you get a feeling of completion. And wholeness. Well, this is, I think, quite important, you know, when you, the complaining mind, the muttering mind, the little weeping mind, uh, you know, the whinging mind, actually to kind of bring, bring them in with, uh, with generous hands. You don't, you don't, you don't concentrate this stuff away. You don't stare it down. And um, this is where you regain the vitality, because as long as you're in it divided inwardly, as long as you're by shame or by fear or by dismissiveness, then bits, you, the bit you got. Blocks in your energy system, you don't have, vi- you don't have a complete vitality there. So, the irony of it is that one has actually begun to acknowledge this, you get a, 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 the fruition of it, of that particular generous and skillful action, is you get a sense of relief and wholeness. And this, in terms of, of uh, also of a meditation theme, um, Say, so if you are doing something like Anapanasati, you you, re, you begin to recognise that the process of developing sati of, of mindfulness means you're able more skillfully to steer towards a meditation object, see it, pick it up, attend to it, focus on it like that, and then the, then calming so that this process of the perceptions and feelings, the citta sankara, the things that arise. Around that particular object are calmed and recognised, and so this is what we call the vijja. And and you, you still have quite a clear experience of a meditation object, like a breath or a light or a sign or something like that. It's a particular point. And then the Panasati, you get into this kind of stage where you actually start to recognise the citta. Which is again this—the subject, that the the intending, the the the, uh, the, uh, the intent, the subject of the mind. Recognizing that, and then uh gladdening it, and steadying it, sensitizing to it, receiving and steadying to it. And at this point, when you do that, the the meditation object actually loses its definition. You don't get such a clear sense of watching a particular point, the meditation object suffuses the mind so then it no longer, is. you can't really call it a breath anymore it's just, there's a suffusion of a kind so this is the, the gladdening of the mind it's when the meditation object completely fills the mind it's no longer an object it's, you've got a ground consciousness which is just bright. it's the a gladdened mind so this is so this is these are some examples of the experience of wholeness, both in terms of dealing with one's thoughts and, and feelings, and also dealing with the meditation object. You can see a unified mind. So this is um, blissful, blissful and wholeness. And what may be perhaps academic is to just to recognise that this is not a completion in itself, not a kind of complete end in itself. Wholeness, of course, is a uh, valuable and beautiful experience. Um, so this is what we call the pure mind, or the one mind, experiencing things of oneness. So these are some examples of the experience of wholeness, both in terms of dealing with one's thoughts and and feelings, and also dealing with the meditation object. Basically, a unified mind. So this is um, blissful, blissful and wholeness. And what may be perhaps academic is to just to recognise that this is not a completion in itself, not a kind of complete end in itself. Wholeness, of course, is a, a valuable and beautiful experience. Um, so this is what we call the pure mind or the one mind. We experience things of oneness and uh, purity and delight. But it acts as the the ground for the rising of consciousness in that particular mode, or in brief rebirth um, so it's called like the rebirth of the pure pure abiding, um, which is not a bad idea, really than where I was born <laughs> <laughs> but uh. No, there's a, there's a further beyond that, and when it, it, um, it seems to, the process where it, this, you're going to move into cessation, is when that, that experience of, of wholeness is actually established and steady, so that you're not getting excited by it. It's coming kind of steady. There's a, there's a cessation of activity around it. And, of course, anything that's, that's delightful or blissful Brings with it the subtle suggestion, "I am this. I've got this. I'm here." You know, maybe just or just sense of being here, and and then the tendency to 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 delve into it and to, to cleave to it, to um, you know to delight in it. So this is where the Buddha is saying even equanimity is something you don't delight in in this kind of digging into it. Feeding it, feeding on it, kind of thing. So it's the cessation of that particular tendency. So cessation really is like the ability to to let go of the subtle realm of subtle form, which doesn't mean not to have it. It means that there's there's a again it's like looking at the quality of intent there's a kind of cooling of one's um, intent to make more of that to have more of that to claim it uh, or anything of that nature and what what saga seems to refer to which is the this quality of utter, of self relinquishment is um, which actually is, is good to bear in mind, even though it may seem like very remote, because it actually applies to the whole of the practice in, in subtler ways. But um, it really, self relinquishment, we can see as a kind of self offering. It means that the whole idea of getting anything, being anywhere, getting in or getting out of anything is nonsense. The idea that one's going to get to somewhere—what does that mean, you know? Or that you're going to become something other than this, or that you're going to realize something—in other words, well, psycho just wipes out the idea of attainment as a notion. As a notion, I'm saying. Now, this idea of attainment is useful at first. You know, to feel that you, you need that kind of thing to, to keep going on. So, but then, Vassago, the problem with it is that you you never really, as long as that thing remains there, then you actually never. you're Always in this kind of sense of leaning or becoming something, trying to get to be something, even on a kind of subtle level where, where you, the, the mind feels quite blissful perhaps, then there's the feeling as you see What do you do now? So that, that kind of mood is what is relinquished. And you see that when you look at it in, in a close up, even just as an idea that I'm bringing up now, you can see that in that mood there is this tendril, this little sticky hook of I am. I am enlightened, or I am this, or I am that, or I'm going to be and um, what quite can quite often happen in, in meditation is one loses bearings with the specifics we can say we have a good time or a good experience or a delightful experience the mind kind of goes into, a, into that particular state and you can't relate it to specific activities it becomes a kind of abstract or a generalized thing. And uh, what becoming is about, and birth, if you is about is about stretching an experience through time. That is, you maybe you get an experience of wholeness, and then there's an inclination to stretch that through time. Now this this becoming process is so familiar with us that we don't ever question its presumption that there is such a thing as time that you stretch through (laughs) you know like time is some kind of medium that exists and you can kind of like space you can move through it really there's just a moment isn't there and that moment doesn't stretch anywhere there's another moment so this when there's clean discernment, your ability to see that consciousness itself is something that is continually, momentarily arising, ceasing. So that the, so for example, if you're practicing Anapanasati, the consciousness associated with the in-breath is different from the consciousness associated with the out-breath. It's a different time, different moment. And if you look at it very closely, then it's a whole process of of f- flickering grains if you like of consciousness or flickering ripples of consciousness that are, that are separate that are different and the becoming instinct tends to blur those all together and you know what that's like on a, when it's on a coarse level how you get strung out how you get, you find yourself reaching into holding, sustaining resisting, not feeling freed up at all so this is when one's becoming something that isn't very skillful. And the B- Buddha said, even with something like becoming in a state of wholeness, he says I value it as much as the smell of dung. <laughs> I don't value it. It's worth that much becoming. <laughs> so you obviously um, this is a pretty strong line to take. you know, this kind of stretching through time you know what I mean? which is associated with something like attainment and through that stretching in time this is one of the primary expressions of I am I am a continuing entity coherent continuing entity so that well, really deals with that piece of mythology It's the inclination to deal with it. It's the possibility of dealing with it. It's the capability of dealing with it. It's even recognizing that notion and feeling some kind of resonance and interest in that. This is where, you know, so because it. That is what association really means. You can have a kind of association that's quite remote or association that's very close and intimate. But whether you see it directly or kind of indirectly, vaguely, you still, it's something that once you've heard that and you've met it, then your life is never the same again. Your practice can never be the same again. Once you've actually heard that and met that, you can't, Practice in the same way anymore. You can't get this kind of chariot. Here we go to nibbana kind of style. Just it's it's, it's it's ludicrous, absurd. So then, you, what it means is you really see that what's important is now specifically this particular time, and it's, whether it's world of form, subtle form, mundane. You know, whatever you like to call it these are just descriptions and the beauty of that is that um, you see that the heart of it is always this self-emptying that's Mm -hmm. what was Saga mean it means this kind of final emptying out of the last drop of it and it's a, it's a beautiful experience because then there is a kind of a, a bliss and delight which is freed. You can take any form or no form. It doesn't matter. But when you really contemplate any form at all, and you don't have an angle on it, and you don't want it or not want it, and it doesn't bother you or delight you. You see it's nature is actually empty or transparent. What it is is what you make it, is the colours you paint it through often unacknowledged qualities of disturbance, aggravation, <laughs> fear, need. This is what gives a form, its colour, and its shape. When that's Put down forms are ontologically transparent, empty. So they have the same essential quality form as the same quality as subtle form. Subtle form is it, the same quality as formlessness, and it's the same quality as it has the same quality of uh, relinquishment in it. So this is the binding in emptiness, or sunyata, is this. Now this may seem kind of very refined, but you see that what it's actually pointing to is there is a continuum, this mind stream of, of emptiness, of deliverance, Of freedom, is actually present in all things. Now even just as a kind of, even just as an idea, you check out with something specifically, and you see what is something other than my opinion, my feeling, my reaction, my intent, what is something other than my shaping of it? In other words, when all if all that were put down or diminished, what is a thing? And then you begin to recognise that this is very much the case. You get a taste of that freedom. So this is the the we begin to what the Buddha himself said that above form and refined form and subtle form and formlessness. You see so this is the best thing to feed on is refined, subtle form. But the deathless is the not feeding or not clinging the that which does not depend upon. This is deathlessness. It's just this. So, any time, in any situation, that we do not feed upon, we do not depend upon, we do not cling with either fascination or aversion, then we are touching into that basis of deathlessness. So this is why, this is where the this is where the kind of you get a feeling for the total field of practice how the Dhamma this quality of kalyana the beautiful is actually inherent in all aspects of the Dhamma because the quality of deathlessness is inherent in all Dhammas when they are properly apprehended and not clung to so it means that we then have that kind of confidence to really apply this to the specifications of conventional existence, which is where it it takes on its real sacredness. To begin to bestow rather than to seize. And so we can see now in this particular, is to acknowledge being in touch with that, Mind stream of Dhamma, which the Buddha expounded thousands of years ago. Same mind stream. Same essential experiences. Same essential problems. Same essential deliverances. Same essential feeling. That particular mind stream. This is to associate what, with what is beautiful. If we do this, then our lives, however we do it for a little bit, we can get a few bits of it, our lives are not wasted. We have cultivated, we have stepped into the stream, and then you don't, you don't go out again. You don't, it's not wasted. Fruits always bear seeds. so offer this for your reflection